As a free, not-for-profit service, Cradio requires the support of people like you to help keep us going in our mission. To donate, visit cradio.org.au slash donate. Cradio. Thou shalt not kill. A talk by Monica Dumit. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me here tonight at Guardians. What a joy it is to be here uh, speaking with all of you. Our topic tonight is Thou Shalt Not Kill. And even if we would be here all night, we would barely scratch the surface of what this means. Of course, the first thing that comes to mind is murder and how wrong it is to take an innocent life. But it means so much more than that. And tonight we're going to talk a little bit about what some of that more is. In particular, we want to talk about abortion and euthanasia. But before we get to that, I want to start with a quick story. So as was mentioned, I studied a Master's of Bioethics and I got it from Sydney University. In one of my very first lectures, the lecturer walked in and said, hands up all the Catholics in the room. And mine was the only hand that went up. And he looked at me and he said, in four bullet points, give me the Catholic position on abortion. I was a bit flustered and sort of stumbled through something along the lines of human beings are made in the image and likeness of God. This gives all human beings a dignity, an inherent dignity that cannot be attacked. Human life begins at conception, therefore abortion is wrong. And he wrote on the whiteboard while I was talking and then he turned around to the class and he went, this is beautiful. It's a logical argument, and that's the thing about the Catholic Church and their teaching on bioethics. The logic of Catholic arguments on bioethics is flawless. He then went on to say, so if you're going to argue with a Catholic about issues of bioethics, don't try to attack the logic of the argument because you're never going to win. What you need to do is you need to attack the premise of the argument. So you argue with them about the idea that human beings are made in the image and likeness of God and that this gives us a special dignity because that's where you have the argument with the Catholics. Don't go arguing with them on the logic, you're not gonna win. This tells us a few things. First, it tells us that our logic is sound and it confirms to us that we can be confident in the logic of the Catholic argument on bioethical issues. Even our opponents know, know that. Second, it tells us that those of us who are going to argue with us or disagree with us on issues of life are usually going to do it on the basis that there's no God or that, that his existence isn't important to these issues. That means that we'll not only have to arm ourselves with faith-based arguments, but also with arguments that don't necessarily rest on a, on a need to believe in God. And third, it tells us that those who want to put forward crazy ideas about attacks on human life and human dignity see the Catholic Church as their enemy and they're the one, we're the ones that they have to oppose. Thanks be to God for that, may it always, always be so. So where do we begin? Most people, no matter what their worldview, will agree that the killing of an innocent human being is wrong. And that's a good thing. We wanna affirm that notion, that natural law sense inside of people. But as we'll discuss tonight, the problem with too many of our brothers and sisters is that without the reasonableness of the Catholic faith, their logic when it comes to killing is that they start making exceptions to that rule. And they decide that killing is okay for either really, really young humans before they're born or really, really old humans just before they die 
or a certain subset of humans who we decide would be better off dead. And the issue with that is that inevitably, unless you hold a consistent pro-life ethic that says the killing of an innocent is wrong in all circumstances, then any line you draw, whether it be age or ability or illness, will be arbitrary. And an arbitrary line is just illogical. Let's take the example of the start of life for a moment. Take those who believe that abortion up until birth is okay, but once the child is born, then they have a right to live. What they're saying is that it's okay to end the life of a child at eight months gestation, still in the womb, but it's wrong to end the life of that same child if it had been born premature. It's the physical location of the child, rather than any other characteristic, that determines the rightness or wrongness of killing it. And that's obviously illogical because location doesn't have any moral weight to it when we're thinking about things from a moral perspective. Most people are uncomfortable with abortion right up until birth though. Most tend to draw the line at what they call viability. That is the ability of the baby to exist outside of the womb. But again, this is an arbitrary line that's ultimately illogical because the ability of a child to survive is getting better. Those who point to viability as a marker will end up needing to change their mind and their moral position as the technology improves. It's funny, but the most logical of abortion supporters are the most extreme ones. You have the Australian ethicist, Peter Singer, who suggests that infanticide should be allowed up until the age when the child is sort of able to understand its surroundings, so up until the age of about two. Singer agrees with us. He agrees with us that there's no moral distinction between a child inside the womb and a child outside of the womb, but he comes to a different conclusion. Instead of saying that the lack of moral distinction means that we shouldn't kill unborn children, he says that it means we should be able to kill babies when, until the time that they're walking around. And while that's really abhorrent to hear, it's incredibly logical. Extremists like Singer are actually the ones whose logic is closest to our own on abortion. There are also some bioethicists just a few years ago who advocated for what they called afterbirth abortion, which is pretty much what Singer's saying, so that you should be able to abort your child after birth. And just last year, a Guardian columnist and so-called comedian was saying that men should have the right to financially abort their babies. So they can't tell the woman in their life, the, the, the woman who's the mother of their child what to do, but they should be able to sign a document where they sign away their rights to fatherhood, but also their financial responsibilities. So she was advocating a pro-choice mentality for men as well. Um, but again, she's just being logically honest. Through all of that logic, we can see that the most logical position, of course, is the one that the church holds and the one that's been taught by the church for so many years. Given this, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about what the church teaches on human life, but mainly take for granted that if you're here tonight, you don't need to be convinced on the church's position on life issues. And after that, what I want to do is spend most of my time talking about how we might have a conversation with those who don't agree with us in this space. But first, let's talk a little bit about church teaching. As I mentioned before, everyone, no matter if they're a faith or not, tends to understand that killing is essentially wrong. St. John Paul II tells us in a special way, Christians must defend and promote this right 
because we know that God himself became a human being. The second Vatican Council said, by his incarnation, the Son of God has united himself in some fashion with every human being. This saving event, John Paul II tells us, reveals to humanity not only the boundless love of God, but also the incomparable value of every human being. Every human being has an inestimable value and dignity because God became a human being. He raised our dignity from the moment of his conception and from the moment of ours. And it is for that reason that human life is sacred, for that reason that it is inviolable. But that's only going to work for people who believe in the incarnation. How do we speak to those who don't believe? The first thing to remember when talking to somebody about these issues is that you need to understand what their motivations are. There is no one size fits all for debates as polarizing as abortion or euthanasia. And so the best rule of thumb is to get to know somebody before you start debating them. But there are a few ways that I have found in my time that assist in discussing these types of topics. The first one, we wanna ask people about choice. Most people will tell you that they are pro-abortion because they're all for a woman's right to choose. In that situation, I tend to bring them to some of the lack of choices that abortion results in for women. In my experience, abortion actually gives women fewer choices because they're expected to abort their child, particularly if it suffers from a disability. How many women are pressured into aborting a child who is diagnosed with Down syndrome or some other genetic condition? How many times are they made to feel as if they're being selfish for having a child, placing a burden on the healthcare system or on our fragile environment suffering from climate change? How many times have we heard people talk about irresponsible parents who have too many children, about how we should only provide welfare payments for the first couple of kids, and then after that, doll-bludging parents should be on their own? But it's not just those who are marginalised out of poverty or disability who are pressured to abort. When I was a lawyer, I remember several times having colleagues made redundant after falling pregnant with their third child. Have two children and stop was the unwritten rule. So much so that we used to give, give a mug with this picture on it to women who were let go after falling pregnant. I don't know if you can see that, but it's Noah's Ark and there are like a million rabbits on there and, and the elephants are saying to each other, I thought the limit was two. And while it's kind of funny, giving that to a woman who's just been made redundant because she felt pregnant with her third child highlighted for me the idea that this isn't about the free choice of the woman. There's an expectation on her that she will regulate her pregnancy even with abortion if she has to. Another way to talk about it is to describe what care for pregnant women should look like. I remember giving a talk at Sydney Uni a couple of years ago and a handful of young women came along to debate me at the end of it. And they were great. They sat through the talk. They were incredibly respectful. And then one of them asked me a question at the end and she sort of said, well, what about a student who falls pregnant and her boyfriend tells her to abort the child or he'll dump her and she can't support a child and keep studying and so she has to drop out and go and find casual work? You know, you just want that woman to suffer for falling pregnant. 
So I stopped for a minute. I said, said to this young woman that what I pre would prefer to happen in that situation is that the father of the child would stay around and he would be encouraged to take responsibility for his child. But if that didn't happen, then I would like to see a world where the community gathered around her, family, friends and others if necessary, even the state, to support her so that she didn't have to choose between having her child and continuing her university education. Why don't universities have subsidised childcare centres on campus? Why, don't, why aren't there enough flexible work opportunities so that she couldn't do both? Give her options rather than expecting her to just solve her problem by having an abortion because she doesn't have the support around her. Don't get trapped into debating people about the rights and wrongs of abortion. Give them an image of what a truly pro-life world would look like if only they would let us have one. Another way to have these conversations is to ask people questions. Ask someone, well, do you believe that a woman should be able to abort a child right up until birth? Most people will say no, particularly if they know what a late-term abortion entails. If they do say no and that they don't believe in abortion right up until birth, ask them where they draw the line and then ask them how they come to that decision. As I mentioned before, any line that gets drawn is arbitrary. And so it helps to, to tease that out a little bit in someone and basically put a mirror up to their, of their logic back to them. Another one to ask them about is sex selective abortion. That is aborting the child because you wanted a child of the opposite sex. Most Australians when polled will say that they're opposed to, to sex selective abortion. But then maybe ask them if they would support the abortion of a child with a disability. And most would agree that that's okay. And then I, I tend to just invite them to have a think about whether or not they're happy for a child to be discriminated against on the basis of their disability, but not on the basis of sex. You start to expose the, logic, the, the lack of logic and also the bias and even the bigotry that comes about in, in some of these positions on abortion. And look, the people who hold these positions are most of the time well-meaning, but they've just never been challenged on where their thinking might take them. Another way to do it is to give them data. Despite what the media tells you, public support for abortion at all stages isn't that high. I just want to show you something from the Medical Journal of Australia. So this is the Medical Journal of Australia. This isn't some Catholic survey. And it's asking people whether abortion should be lawful during each trimester of pregnancy. For the first trimester, 61% of people said that it should be lawful. The second trimester, that drops to 12%. And the third trimester, to 6%. Those who say that it depends on the circumstances, 26% in the first trimester, 57% in the second trimester and 42% in the third trimester. Essentially what this shows us that the only time where you have a majority support for abortion is in the first trimester. After that, people want to be putting restrictions on there. They're not particularly comfortable with a child over 12 weeks being aborted. You change one mind in that first trimester and it's a dead heat. Don't let people tell you that 
opinion on abortion is where they say it is. Um, here's another one for you. If you wouldn't mind, I'm going to have a little bit of a practical exercise. If you've got your phone on you, can you pull it out and try and find this article? So it's called How to Beat Anti-Choice Protesters at Their Own Game. I know we've got audio going on this as well. We've got an audio CD. So as long as you're not driving listening to this, if you also want to pull out your phone and Google How to Beat Anti-Choice Protesters at Their Own Game, it'll come up with a Daily Life article. So I'll give you a about 30 seconds to get that article up. And then I want you to scroll down almost all the way to the end. So if you get almost all the way to the end of that article, there'll be a couple of paragraphs up. There'll be a paragraph that starts, indeed, more than 80% of Australians support abortion services. Has everyone got that? Yeah. Okay, can you see the 80% is underlined? It's hyperlinked. What do we think when something's hyperlinked? What do you think if you click on that 80%, where's it going to take you? You assume it's going to take you to a study or some type of survey that shows that 80% of Australians support abortion. For those who haven't already, click on the link. It links to the Apple website. <laughs> For the most part, people skimming through that article, they're not going to click on the hyperlink. They're going to assume that the people writing the article, the people putting it up online, are doing that in good faith. They're going to go, oh, okay, well, they must have evidence for that decision, for the reason for saying that. They link to the Apple website. We can't believe everything the media tells us about, about this. Anyway, it's funny, after that article appeared, I wrote to them and asked if I could send through a response from a pro-life perspective and they just came back and said, no, that wouldn't be appropriate for their readership. <laughs> Go figure. Um, the other way to engage people and probably the best way if we've got it is to tell stories. I know some people in this room have stories about loved ones who were pressured to abort, maybe loved ones who have had abortions. Um, if we can tell personal stories about how this has affected our lives, then that's also a good way to have a conversation with people. And if you'll indulge me, I'm going to tell you a, a story that happened in my own life. So about five years ago, I just started working at the Archdiocese of Sydney. And I'd, I'd been writing for the Catholic Weekly. I'd been there a couple of months maybe. And I got a phone call from a young man who I knew who came along to a World Youth Day with me a number of years before. And he said to me, oh, you write for the Catholic Weekly, don't you? And I said, yeah, I do. And he said, do you mind if maybe you were to write a story about what's happening to my niece? She's 14. She's run away from home and she'd been living in a women's shelter. But now she's pregnant. And look, her, you know, her life's messed up in a number of areas, but she knows that abortion's wrong and she doesn't want the abortion. But they said to her, that if she doesn't have an abortion, then she's going to have to leave the women's shelter because it's a women's shelter and not a family shelter. She can't have the baby while she's there. And so her risk is between being kicked out of her shelter uh, and being back on the street or having the baby. And so they've booked her in for an abortion on Friday. This was a Wednesday night, he called. So, so I was wondering if you could um, 
maybe write a story about how that pressure affected her. And I told him, of course, I'd be happy to, but we still had a couple of days. And so he gave me the phone number of the, the doc's caseworker. And I called this doc's caseworker the next day, the Thursday morning. This poor guy must have wished he, he hadn't have gotten out of bed that day. <laughs> and so I, I called him and I said, look, I'm a friend of the family. I have absolutely no authority uh, from this girl to be speaking with you or to be acting on her behalf. I'm also a lawyer. Uh, so the best thing... The best thing in the world would be if you just kept quiet altogether because then you can be absolutely certain you're not breaking her confidentiality. So if you just say nothing, I'm just going to talk for a couple of minutes. And I said, she's a 14-year-old girl. I'm not sure she's got the mental capacity to be providing informed cons consent for an abortion without the approval of her parents. I understand that you're not really letting her parents go in and see her. So I'm going to have to walk across the road to the court and ask them to force you to, to cancel the abortion and let this girl get some counselling and let her see her parents. And then I'm going to go to the media. And docs are, going to have to, uh, docs are going to have to answer to why they're threatening to kick a 14-year-old girl out of a shelter because she's pregnant. I said, so we can do that. It's going to take up a few hours if my dad prefer not to, or you can cancel the abortion. Uh, he hung up the phone and called me back a couple of hours later and said the abortion had been cancelled. Uh, little baby Natalia was born on the Feast of the Exaltation of the Holy Cross, which I think was God's providential timing, uh, and she's my goddaughter. And mum is back at home, back at school, and now has another child as well, and, and they're thriving. The only people who are willing to give this young mother a choice were the so-called anti-choice people. People who describe themselves as pro-choice often don't give a crap about giving women choices. They absolutely don't. They want to give them one choice and one choice alone. Anyway, that's abortion. Let's go to the other side of life now and move on to euthanasia. On the one hand, this is a more difficult conversation to have than abortion because even more of our brothers and sisters seem more inclined to support it. But on the other hand, it's a much easier conversation to have because there's so much more information out there about the negative consequences of euthanasia, even though it's been around for a much shorter time. Before we start, I just want to get some definitions clear. When we talk about euthanasia, we talk about the doctor providing the patient with a lethal injection. So the doctor is the one actually administering the drug. When we talk about assisted suicide, the patient is given a prescription for lethal drugs, which they then take themselves at a time of their own choosing. So the argument in Australia and the laws in Australia are mainly to allow assisted suicide. That's the primary, primary way which they want to do this. And then with euthanasia as a backup if it doesn't work for some reason. When people argue for euthanasia or assisted suicide, they usually do so for one of two reasons. One group of people say it's all about choice and that people should be entitled to choose when and how they die. But if that was true and free choice was the reason that euthanasia was allowed, then why put in place restrictions? Why should it be just for those who are terminally ill? Why not the disabled or the chronically ill or the mentally ill 
or anyone who wants it. Again, the most logical euthanasia advocates are people like Philip Nitschke, who, who argues for something that he calls rational suicide, so that any competent adult should be able to access lethal drugs to take their own life. That's one group of people. The other group of people talk about the relief of suffering and that it's more humane to let people in their lives if they're suffering. But again, there's a lot of suffering in the world and some people who aren't terminally ill suffer a great deal. If we're motivated by compassion and we're motivated by ending people's suffering, then why not everyone who's suffering? If we move past these questions that are in many ways philosophical, we can also talk about other reasons why euthanasia is a bad idea. One really simple thing that we can tell people is that all major medical associations across the world are against euthanasia and assisted suicide. Even something as simple as that, a lot of people don't know. The World Medical Association uses very, very firm language, calling it unethical and saying that it must be condemned. The Australian Medical Association is softer, but still says that doctors should not be involved in interventions that have as their aim the ending of the patient's life. Palliative care specialists, those, those who work with dying patients, are similarly opposed. I want to talk a little bit more later about palliative care, but Australian palliative care specialists are quite angry that their work is continually undermined by euthanasia advocates. We can also talk about the disproportionate effect it has on vulnerable groups. There are many people who don't want to be a burden on their families, physical or financial. About two-thirds of those who, list, who seek assisted suicide in Oregon, where it's legal, list being a, a burden on family, friends and caregivers as a reason for requesting their lethal drugs. What about those who aren't blessed with loving families around them? We hear so much about elder abuse at the moment. We've just been through a Royal Commission into aged care. The elderly are already so vulnerable. And as we meet here tonight, there's a meeting going on in the Gold Coast where 200 elderly people are learning how to kill themselves because they've seen the reports about the aged care facilities in the Gold Coast coming out of the Aged Care Royal Commission and they don't want to go there. What about the disabled? The UN just did a visitation to Canada and their report said that people suffering from disabilities are being pressured to ask for euthanasia. And it's not only the elderly and the disabled, it's others who are vulnerable in other ways, particularly with what we call a contagion risk. Once assisted suicide is legal, the, the suicide rate in the community generally goes up. Oregon has had legalised assisted suicide for about 20 years now. In 2014, its suicide rate, not counting assisted suicide, so it's just ordinary suicide rate, was 43% higher than the national average. Once you say that suicide is an acceptable way to deal with pain, people start to take it up for any type of pain. Suicide is a deep scourge on this country and anyone who has had a loved one take their own life or attempt to take their own life know exactly how awful it is. Why would we open the doors to making that a more acceptable option? We also see the categories for euthanasia and assisted suicide expanding in other countries. 
Last year in Belgium, 57 people, more than one a week, were euthanized because they were suffering from mental or behavioral disorders only. And 83 people were experiencing psychological suffering only and were killed. In Colombia, euthanasia has been expanded to children over the age of six and parental consent is not necessary for those aged 12 years or older. The Netherlands, Belgium and Luxembourg allow euthanasia and assisted suicide for dementia, drug and alcohol addiction, mental illness and disability. And Belgium and the Netherlands have reduced age restrictions so it's available to minors. There's also now a push to have anyone over the age of 70 years to, able to access euthanasia for what they call completed life. As I mentioned before, what often trips us up is people say, this isn't going to affect me, I don't have to choose euthanasia, so why should I stop anyone else from doing it? But our decisions always, always have consequences for other people. There's no such thing as a private decision. Let me give you just two examples, one from Oregon and one from California. The choice to approve assisted suicide meant that Barbara's insurance company stopped covering her chemotherapy drugs. So as I said, Oregon has had the law in place for a long time. And after these cases came out, after, after Barbara's case came out, when California passed their assisted suicide law, they made it a rule that in the same letter that denies somebody coverage for their drugs, you're not also allowed to talk about assisted suicide. That has to be a separate letter. So here's the story of Stephanie Packer. Her chemotherapy drugs were approved over the phone by her insurance company. A week after that happened, um, her chemotherapy drugs were approved over the phone. California passed its assisted suicide law. One week after the law was passed, she got a letter from her insurance company saying, we will no longer cover your chemotherapy, your painkillers, or your oxygen because the law said that they couldn't talk about physician-assisted suicide in the letter. She rang them and said, well, can you tell me how much it would cost to get the physician, <laughs> the doctor-assisted suicide, <laughs> no, I can't say that word tonight, drugs. And they said, yeah, absolutely. You just have to pay the gap, which is $1.20, and we'll give you those drugs. Stephanie and Barbara's experiences aren't isolated. About one in 14 people who access assisted suicide in Oregon talk about the financial implications of treatment as their reason for requesting death. The sums were actually done in Canada where euthanasia is also legal. Reports showed that the average healthcare cost in the last year of a person's life was about $53,000 and that the cost rose sharply in, in the last sort of four months of life. Caring for the dying costs 10% of the healthcare budget, even though it's only spent on about 0.67 of the population. The Canadian researchers found that euthanasia could save between 35 and $140 million a year. It's not about individual choice. Don't be fooled and don't let anybody else fool themselves. In a society where the state does not sanction the killing of its vulnerable, there's no dilemma that, that presents itself for a person who finds themselves ill or in need of long-term care. There's a presumption that the community will care for them in their need. 
providing an option sanctioned by the state that taking your own life in certain circumstances is legally permissible fundamentally alters the social contract that we have with each other. It transforms thou shall not kill to you may kill some people in some circumstances and it removes the responsibility of the state and the community more broadly to care for those in need. And there are alternatives to euthanasia. We don't want people unnecessarily die, unnecessarily suffering as they die. In fact, we, of course we believe that people should die with dignity. But that's why we build hospitals and that's why we build aged care homes. And that's why Mother Teresa's sisters are in a hundred and something countries caring for the dying. So that's what we do. And that's how we do death with dignity. But there's also a job for the government. And apart from fixing our aged care system that has been shown to be so abusive, they also need to get serious about palliative care. Australian palliative care services are currently the second best in the world, but they need more resources. If we take Victoria as an example, where we heard today that the first permit for euthanasia has been given in that state, the Victorian government had an inquiry into end-of-life care and it made 49 recommendations at the end of it. Of those 49, 30 of them related to improving palliative care services and only one to the introduction of euthanasia and assisted suicide. Palliative Care Victoria said that they could implement those recommendations for $65 million a year. The government gave them nothing and instead proceeded with the euthanasia legislation. After that had passed through, it gave palliative care $62 million over five years, so less than 20% of what they were asking for. Palliative care, Victoria, palliative care in Victoria is the worst in the country when it comes to the number of palliative care, carers per patient. There are 0.7 palliative carers per 100,000 patients and the standards say there should be at least two. It's about a third of what is necessary. This is what we're facing. Governments aren't giving people choices as they push to legalise euthanasia. If they were serious about giving people choice at the end of life, then they would be funding palliative care. I could go on, but I'm way over time. Um, I guess what I was trying to demonstrate was that there are a lot of reasons to oppose abortion, euthanasia and assisted suicide without necessarily believing in the dignity of the human person made in the image and likeness of God. But even in our conversations with other people, even if we put that aside for the purposes of an argument, we still need to remember that ourselves and examine our own consciences with how we think about life. This is not only what we think about, that shall not kill is not only what we think about abortion, euthanasia, IVF, surrogacy, contraception and things like that. But we need to make sure that we respect human beings not only at the start of their life and at the end, but at every stage throughout. We need to talk about poverty, about malnutrition and hunger, about war, about the refugee crisis. We need to talk about the cultural behaviours that open the doors to abortion and euthanasia. We need to talk about a misunderstanding of freedom and how we use that. Pope Francis reminds us that thou shalt not kill also means we shouldn't do violence to one another with our words, with our gossip, and with enough hatred in our hearts that we wish people evil. We might know that we should never wish people harm, but we also should never wish people go to hell. 
Everybody, even our enemies, we want conversion for them. We want heaven for them and we need to treat them like it. And that's how we ourselves need to be more pro-life. John Paul Chu tells us that the only way that we can keep faithful to the commandment thou shalt not kill is if we keep all of the commandments. We can't just pat ourselves on the back and say that we're part of a culture of life because we don't kill. We have to be faithful to the whole of the law. Remember, Jesus taught us that thou shalt not kill also includes being angry with our brother. And in order to be people of life, we need to curb our tongues and our tempers. And being people of life isn't only about obeying all of the thou shalt nots in the Decalogue, but by being of service to our brothers brothers and sisters, by proclaiming Christ who is life. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan. That is what it looks like to be pro-life. It's not only about not being the person who beat him up and left him on the side of the road for dead, but it's about being the type of people who go out and find those who are hurting, who bind their wounds and who carry them to a place of healing. In our own day-to-day lives, it might mean being of service to families around us. It takes a village to raise a child. And if we want families around us to be open to life, then we need to be there for them when the going gets tough babysitting, cooking, helping out in other ways. Whatever your skill set, being pro-life includes offering these skills to the families God places in your life. I know the Maronites do this well. This community understands family and its importance more than many, but it's always good to examine our consciences and see if we can do, do more. As JP2 tells us, The deepest element of God's commandment to protect human life is the requirement to show reverence and love for every person and the life of every person. So let's go do that. Thank you. That was Monica Dumit with Thou Shalt Not Kill. For more talks, interviews and shows, visit cradio.org.au.